Good morning, everybody, to all our listeners at Hillsdale College in the Hillsdale community um, around the state in Michigan and to all our listeners online as well. My name is Ben Dietrich, and I'm here along with my colleague, Alex Nestor. And this is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation, but it's not just any old special episode, folks. We are at CPAC. It is 2020, February 27th. And uh, it's, it's turning out to be quite an event here. So we're on Media Row. We've got interviews stopping by all day. We could have Congressman Mark Meadows coming up here. He's one of the congressmen that will be retiring this upcoming fall. We're going to be talking with him hopefully shortly. we got more interviews this hour. But first, we want to welcome you to this special edition of American View. This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. So, what a day it is today. We got the <laughs> vice president showing up later. We do. You know, um, let's, let's talk about that for a second, of course, Alex, because last night they had a news conference at the White House. Um, it was around 6 p.m., mm-hmm. kind of an odd thing. They haven't had a, a news conference in the White House since, uh, for, for quite some months now. And, and the president was there, the vice president, several members of his cabinet, and they announced that Vice President Pence is going to be the point man for the coronavirus. Yes, not only is he the vice president now, but he is also the coronavirus czar. So <laughs> That's what they're calling him. Some people are put at ease by this. I, for one, would count myself you know, on this team. You know, the hard problem, though, with the, the, the big problem, excuse me, with coronavirus right now is the fact that people don't know whether to take it seriously as a threat based on what the Democrats are saying and what the Republicans are saying, or if it is already just simply being politicized to the point where we don't really know anymore how concerned should mm-hmm. Americans really be. Sure. And I think that's where I think any person should just take a moderate middle ground and think, you know what, we do have the first case reported in Northern California of an individual who contracted coronavirus with no known source. This individual did not go to China, did not go to the Wuhan uh, province where the coronavirus is to uh, have, was said to have originated and did not have contact with anyone else who did so. So, yes, that is quite concerning. Um, however, when we compare it to other outbreaks and things that have happened, or even the flu, uh, the flu has killed more people this year in the United States alone um, compared to individuals who have died of coronavirus this year. So when we think about it in that kind of context, we need to remember those facts and those numbers. You know, and that's true. It's just, it, I know we're at the conservative political mm-hmm. action conference right now. People <laughs> back home might be thinking, why the heck are we talking about coronavirus right now? But this story has really exploded. Even when we were on our way here mm-hmm. from Hillsdale, Michigan, on the plane, yes. I, w- I was sitting next to a passenger that had a mask on. My first concern was, oh, no, she might Is be she sick. she sick? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then she, she was actually going to this conference, mm-hmm. and, and she made the point. She said, yeah, you know, my mom's in the medical field, and she said I should wear a mask on an airplane because, you know, airports are hotbeds for, for flus and all that. And so she took some prevention. Now here, now that the vice president is speaking today here, this is his first major public appearance since this announcement. He will most likely make an appearance on Media Row. You know, there's a chance we might talk to him. We will see in good time. 
by the way, for all our listeners right now, if you're listening on the radio, be sure to check out soundcloud.com slash Radio Free Hillsdale or Google Radio Free Hillsdale. Follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on SoundCloud. You can also follow myself, Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D. Alex, what's your Twitter? My Twitter is at AlexNester2020. And no, I am not running for president. <laughs> And we're going to be on you know, these, these social media networks all day posting interviews as we talk to the leading conservative thinkers, the leading conservative congressional leaders of today's age. It's going to be a very exciting day. So I want to share with you all an interesting story. Um, last thing on coronavirus, then we're going to be moving on to uh, the theme of CPAC this year, America versus socialism. It's going to be very interesting to see what everybody has to say about that. But I, I think this post was so funny. I got to share it with you last night. What happened last night? AOC, after you know this whole coronavirus thing um, happened in the White House, where they talked, to Mike, Pence, they announced that Mike Pence was going to be the, you know, the czar um, assigned to making sure that the coronavirus is managed in the United States. Um, AOC posted a crazy article saying Mike Pence, who enabled an HIV outbreak in Indiana, will lead the U.S. coronavirus response. Um, and so he, she posted this piece basically insinuating that somehow Mike Pence is responsible for HIV all across the state of Indiana. Uh, <laughs> it's weird, state. you know, across the state. All right. One of the things that we see happening, you know, that, that really comes out d- during an epidemic or a crisis like this mm-hmm. is the left's true beliefs with regards to what the role of elected officials should be in our federal government today, that all comes out, what they actually think about that. The fact that, you know, AOC believes that the experts should be the ones running our government, that they need to be the ones, you know, deciding what the public health officials should be doing, not the elected officials. And that may seem, you know, to make sense in in a crisis like coronavirus because you think oh this isn't about politics this is obviously about uh you know a a public health crisis Mm -hmm. but even in in this situation um you see that it can be politicized sure and i think one of the foundational points of the progressive movement is this trust in quote-unquote experts what exactly defines an expert in a certain field? Of course, when it comes to things like coronavirus, medical things, you, you turn to doctors. And while we should trust our, our doctors and what they say and, and trust them with our health, we do have to kind of, you know, take into account that it, people can be wrong. I don't think there is a such thing as, you know, an expert or someone that can make um, the exact right decision and, and know everything that goes into the decision and and c- can, can always choose the proper course of action. I mean, you think of things like even flu vaccinations. I think it's great to get flu vaccinations, but you also have to think of all of the science and the steps that go into making them. Oftentimes, the flu, the flu vaccination might not even contain the right strand of the flu virus that is going around that year. It is yeah. all based on, um, you know, statistics. Right. So. Yeah. No. And so I guess, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see what happens with that story. We'll see what Vice President Pence has to say if he mentions it at all in his speech here at CPAC. 
Folks, we're at CPAC 2020. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. That slogan today is is coming true uh, all too quickly as, as we talk with some of America's top leaders here. Um, right now, we're going to cut to an interview we had yesterday with Tim Murtaugh. He is the director of communications for the Trump campaign. I sat down last night, talked with him about the strategies that he will be employing to take on the Democrats in 2020. It was a good interview, folks. We're going to cut to that right now, and we are going to have more coverage as it happens here on this Thursday morning, February 27th, 2020. I'm Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. And this is my interview yesterday with Tim Murtaugh, Director of Communications for the Trump campaign. Hi, I'm here at CPAC with Tim Murtaugh. He's the Director of Communications for the Trump campaign. Mr. Marta, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, happy to be here. So I wanna ask you, what is it like to be the communications director for the re-election, re-election uh, campaign of Donald J. Trump, especially for a guy that obviously, you know, the main ways that you would traditionally communicate with your voters through the media, when they all seem to, for the most part, a lot of them really dislike the president. How do you how do you effectively do your job? They do, and I think uh, you know they are the card carrying opposition. A lot of them see themselves as um, you know in competition with the president. They're trying to one up the president. They're trying to defeat him. I think um, the overwhelming majority of the members of the mainstream press that uh, the president encounters every day and who cover his campaign from inside the D.C. Beltway uh, every day. Um, are trying to destroy him and trying to bring him down and trying to prevent him from getting a second term. I think there's no question of that. So how do we combat that? Well, we, I mean, we have to deal with those members of the press because it's just a reality and we're, we're all based in Washington and we spend a lot of time in Washington, so we have to deal with them and, and the, those are just, it's just uh, a known feature of the landscape, so you just deal with it. But we, the president gets out on the road and he goes and he talks to the people directly. We hold these rallies week after week in cities and states all across the country. Um, the president tweets. Yeah. And that's where he reaches more than 70 million people on Twitter uh, instantly, directly from him. We also talk to the local media because they they, uh, they actually, believe it or not, are doing the job of, of what reporters do. They report on what's happening without injecting um, the inside the beltway view of the, of the Washington establishment. These are people who are of uh, and from these local communities, and they are covering the news that's interesting to people. And so uh, that's really the best, most effective way for us to get our message out is, is to talk to the local media and through uh, talk shows, radio shows like your own here. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, the, it's so, just a sad reality that we have to go around the Beltway media, but we do, and we have ways to do that. And the president has the biggest megaphone of all, so that, right. that helps a lot. So let's talk about that message. Um, you know, for voters out there, how do you decide how to you know, craft the message? Who are you targeting? I mean, obviously at some point there's got to be if, if they're progressive enough, maybe they're not somebody that's going to really necessarily be a likely voter for, for President Trump. You know, when you're thinking about what type of message you're going to craft, what comes to mind for you? Well, I, we think that the president's record, his record of accomplishment on behalf of all Americans is something that really should truly reach all Americans. And it doesn't matter if you're black or white or Latino or Asian or male or female, it doesn't really matter, that we have a good story to tell. And so I think that's the way that we tell it. Look, this, this economy, take the economy, for example, it's the best economy that anyone has seen in this country for 50 years. The unemployment rate is at a, a low point, uh, the best has been in half a century. For all of the different 
different ways you could look at our electorate and the citizenry, different demographics. It is the lowest unemployment rate in history for women, for blacks, for Latinos, for Asians, for veterans. Uh, the news is so good all around the country. And so we that's the message that we sell, that, it, that in, in 2016, the president was a candidate without really a record. People knew who Donald Trump was, but he had never been a politician before, never held elected office before, and so he made a lot of promises to people. So this is the way we go around the country now. The president talked about promises made, promises kept. Yeah. That booming economy that he talked about in 2016, it's here now, it's a reality. America is leading on the world stage again. It means something. When America says we're going to do something on the international stage, it actually means something. For example, our, our allies in NATO are now paying their fair share beforehand, before that, before the president came along, um, we were being, you know, people were eating our lunch. We were paying the whole tab uh, for NATO. Um, presidents ran for office saying over and over again over decades that they were going to stand up to China, but no one ever did until Donald Trump came right. along. So these are things, this, this is the message, and we see it in our rallies where fully 25% of the people who register for tickets to the president's rallies, we can identify them, we know who they are, are independents or Democrats. Mm. You know, the media would like to tell you that the president is just preaching to the choir at these rallies, but... In fact, we are expanding the pool of people who support the president's re-election. There's a lot, of, a lot of people who did not vote for him in 2016 who are in there now. Yeah, Chairman McDaniel mentioned those numbers to me the other day, and they're fascinating, really, to, to see all the people you're bringing in. I mean, if you had to choose one demographic that you think we're going to see the biggest possible change in in 2016 versus, or 2020, excuse me, from 2016, what is the group that you think maybe makes the biggest break towards Republicans and the president? I think... Um, it's hard to select one, right. so I think I think probably uh, black Americans, black voters, are, are going to come out for President Trump in ways that uh, we just have not seen black voters come out for a Republican. What, what does that do to the electoral map then? I mean, I tell you what, if, we get, if it gets to a certain level of support in, in the black population, it's, it's game over for the yeah. Democrats. And, and it would be game over for a, for a long, long time, time to come. They've, they've talked about winning over African Americans, but it's been hard to, you know, to really... Um, build that base of, uh, on the conservative side. Yeah, it has. It There's no question of that. But President Trump, look, in 2016, he said to black voters, and he was very upfront about it, he said, look, you have been voting Democrat for decades upon decades, right? So look at me. Take a chance, of, take a chance on me. What the hell do you have to lose? Yeah. Right? Has it really gotten that much better for you voting for Democrats all these years? It doesn't seem like it. So take a chance on Trump. And now what does he have to show? He can, he, can run, he can go around to all these communities across America and say, look, it is the lowest black unemployment rate in history. Prior to the Trump administration, black unemployment in this country had never, not one time, not for one month, ever fallen below 7%, ever. And for Donald Trump, it hit 5.5%. No other president had ever had it under 7%. He has dedicated more money to historically black colleges and universities than any prior president. Uh, he has been a champion of criminal justice reform, the First Step Act, giving people a second chance at life and earning early release from prison. He signed that bill. No other president was ever able to get that done. Jared Kushner inside the White House so, was a big push for yeah, that. There was, the big, there was the big advertisement from the Super Bowl, which came to sure. mind. You mentioned the criminal justice yep. thing. Walk me through that. What came to mind for you guys when you were deciding which ad, you know, what to use for that ad space? Because that's, that's always something I find very interesting is how do you choose the advertisements 
they're going to put out on, you know, especially the ones that are going to be seen na nationwide. Well, there was a lot of thought put into that because, you know, if you're going to drop $10 million on 60 seconds of airtime, you want to make sure yeah. that, you know, we have a lot of resources and we certainly can afford to spend $10 million because the president had raised has raised an unbelievable amount of money. But you still, when you're dropping $10 million on one ad, uh, we actually broke it up into two 30-second ads. You want to make sure that it's the right message. Ultimately, it was the president's decision on, on what message it was to carry. And the Alice really? Johnson is the ad that uh, he went with. And it's the story of a woman uh, who had been serving a life sentence for her first nonviolent drug offense, got a life sentence for it, and uh, the, her case was brought to the president's attention, and he commuted her sentence, and she, she got out of prison early, and she is really um, a really great example of what the president's approach to criminal justice reform is. He believes that people who have shown that they have gotten their lives back together and have earned it should be given a second chance at life. They are reunited with their families. They're able to re-enter the community and be productive members of society again. She was not covered by the First Step Act, which the president signed, but the two go hand in hand. Her case is illustrative of how the president views that. And so that was, that was you know, and you're going to get 100 million people watching your Super Bowl ad. Right. And so that was a message because these, these are things that we think the mainstream media is not going to tell you about Donald Trump's record. No, they're right? not. So we have to do it, and the only way to really make it penetrate is to put money behind it, get it on TV, and force everybody to write about it because it's a Super Bowl ad. They had yeah. to write a story about it, and you get 100 million, 100 million people watching it when it airs. Um, that's, that's, so that's the way we approached it. I was very impressed by that ad, and you know, I've been impressed, obviously, by the president's instincts in a lot of things. I think we all have. Uh, he saw a lot of things coming in 2016 that a lot of people did not see, and it certainly continues to still seem to be the case in terms of advertisements, though, it's, it's, there's a funny backstory to this because in 2018, right before the midterms, there was a New York Times piece out. They talked about the fact that the president, I, you know, I don't know how much we can really testify to if this was true, but a story over whether or not he decided not to run a positive ad in favor of a negative ad that focused on immigration hmm. um, was the gist of the story. And so, you know, in 2016, in, in 2018, 2018, this was during the midterms. Okay, midterms, and it was yeah. right, right before the midterms. He basically decided at the last moment we should we should push towards that. That's what the New York Times claimed. Okay, whether or not it's true. Well, they print a lot of things that they you do. Know, single <laughs> single anonymous source. Yeah, right? Tim, I'm on your side for this. I, <laughs> I know we're running out of time here, but my question though is, you know, when you're choosing the right ad for for your campaign to tell your story, I mean. Ronald Reagan, everybody thinks about the Morning in America 1984 ad. There seems mm -hmm. to be many parallels to this presidency and this time. Do you choose a traditional ad if, you're, if you right now are, are picturing this, or do you choose something that's um, more narrative-like? Uh, what exactly is your, your closing message? You know, 30 seconds. Well, right now, it's a very optimistic view of what's going on in this country. The president had probably the most successful campaign slogan in history, Make America Great Again, in 2016, and uh, he replaced it. You know, even the, the, he is the, just the master marketer. He's now replaced it to with uh, Keep America Great. Yeah. And as a tagline that he's been using at the end of his speeches at rallies these days is, and the best is yet to come. So I think that probably encapsulates what our message is right now, and it's reflected in our current advertising, is that the president made certain promises. He was going to turn this country around, make America great again. He has done so. Promises made, promises kept. Now the goal is to keep America great because under a second Trump term, the best is yet to come. Well, Tim, thank you so much. Sure. It was uh, Tim Murdoch. Yeah, Tim Murdoch, everybody, Director of Communications for the Trump Campaign. 
And that was Tim Murdaugh, as you just heard. That was from last night on Wednesday. We are at CPAC, everybody. This is our coverage on behalf of Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thank you for joining this broadcast. My name is Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. And you're now listening back to our, our feed here. It is 9.30 a.m. as we are recording here, uh, February 27, 2020, um, out of National Harbor, Maryland. Uh, so, you know, what did you think of that, Alex? Because I was very struck by some of the things he said, in particular what he said about President Trump and criminal justice. Um, yeah, I think one interesting point with President Trump that I think he can make some friends um, across the aisle is his idea of criminal justice reform. We do in the United States have so many people that are incarcerated right now, sometimes for crimes that happen, you know, or nonviolent drug crimes or things that had happened so long ago. It's, um, you know, gucking and, and, and you know, our, our prison system is just very overwhelmed right now. So I think President Trump has kind of maybe made some friends across the aisle with that, don't you? He think? has, and that is one of the biggest questions here that we are going to be talking about a lot this this weekend. And that, of course, mm-hmm. is does President Trump, do Republicans, can conservatives expand their movement into these minority groups? This is... I love this so much talking about this because I've, I've been talking about it forever. We talked with Candace Owens last year. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk to her again this year at CPAC. The idea of Blexit, Black Exit from the Democratic <laughs> yeah. Party, Hispanics. Yeah. I mean, people talk about President Trump like he's this polarizing figure in which he can't win uh, minority votes. But the reality is in 2016, he did better than Mitt Romney did. He did better than George Bush did for a lot of these groups. Um, he's done better than a lot of previous mm-hmm. Republican presidents. Uh with attracting minority voters, it's as if he's not actually racist. Well, and, and how about that? The numbers, <laughs> the numbers would you know agree with that after he was elected, um, as you said in the interview. Black unemployment dropped below seven percent for the first time in the United States history yep. under President so, Trump. It, and that's so true. And so you know, today what we'll be talking about for the rest of this broadcast is this is Donald Trump's story. This is the conservative story uh, of, of America's success. Does it stand a chance, chance against the left's calls to embrace socialism? More on that later this hour. This has been American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. Our special edition. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale. We're coming to you from CPAC. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back, everybody, to our coverage. Uh, we are at CPAC today. We are coming to you from the Gaylord National Convention Center right outside Washington, D.C. This is a special edition of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. On behalf of Radio Free Hillsdale and all of our colleagues to here, here today, I'd like to welcome you to this special broadcast. This is the second half of the first hour today. Be sure to check us out online, SoundCloud slash Radio Free Hillsdale, where we will be posting all of our interviews today. But right now, we have something very cool. Madeline Fry, she's a Hillsdale graduate. She's now over at the Washington Examiner. And to talk with her today is Isabel Regi, who's actually interning at Fox News, but today she's working for us. Isabel, we're going to let you take over here now and uh, lead this interview. 
Thanks, Ben. I'm Isabella Regi, and I'm sitting down again with Madeline Fry. She is a culture commentary writer at the Washington Examiner and during her time at Hillsdale served as the culture editor of the Hillsdale Collegian. Uh, Maddie graduated in 2018, and now we're sitting down with her talking about her most recent piece, Netflix's Love is Blind offers an honest abortion moment. Thanks for coming on, Madeline. Thanks for having me. So could you give us a little rundown of what your piece, uh, some of the claims in your piece, how you kind of describe this honest abortion moment that happened in this new reality TV show? Yeah, so Netflix is kind of breaking into the reality TV sphere, sphere which doesn't make it sound very serious, but there's actually a really powerful moment in their new show. It's called Love is Blind, um, and the setup is pretty ridiculous. People will go on dates with each other. They never get to see each other until they actually get engaged, and then they finally get to see each other's faces. So it's kind of a test of the theory, is love blind? Um, So one of the couples, they're having a conversation before they decide whether or not they're going to get engaged, Um, and one of the women is opening up about an experience that she had in her life, and she once had an abortion. She was in a relationship and um, got pregnant accidentally and told her partner about it. Mm -hmm. And he was not supportive and said that he thought that they needed to quote unquote fix the problem. And so she ended up having an abortion and she said that it was a devastating decision for her. It was very difficult. She um, is still affected by it to this day. And afterwards her partner was like, why aren't you just getting over this? Why isn't this you know, it's not a big deal, but for her, it was a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very honest moment. It's not something that you see a lot on TV now. I think there's kind of a push towards um, making abortion content on films and in TV shows where it's just a very simple decision. A woman decides she needs to get an abortion and she goes and she gets it done and it's not a big deal. But that's really just not the reality for a lot of women. Exactly. Just like you said, uh, it doesn't seem like television broadcasts a lot of pro-life or or you know anti-pro-choice like rhetoric um do you where do you think there are other areas in our culture where we come across any pro-life rhetoric if if at all yeah so um recently there was the film unplanned which is about abby johnson who Mm -hmm. uh, worked for planned parenthood and then decided that she uh changed her mind about abortion and wanted to become a pro-life activist that was a really powerful film but that's not a message that you see a lot in culture um in a lot of tv shows there was a there's a hulu show called shrill and it kind of starts the whole the first season starts the woman decides that she needs to get an abortion and afterwards she's empowered and that kind of kicks off the rest of the tv show so that's this that's um what you see more often is that abortion is actually Um, sort of a helpful thing in people's lives and that's the way it's depicted rather than not even just pro-life but even just a more honest depiction of sometimes this is a very very um, difficult decision for women and a decision that a lot of women regret. So we're sitting here at CPAC and pro-life is often associated with the conservative movement. Do you think that television, usually liberal leaning, there's room for pro-life rhetoric left in the liberal movement or on the left? Or do you think that it's primarily become a conservative principle on its own? I think functionally it is um, much more prevalent on the right. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of Democrats have been rejecting pro-life, not only legislation, but even rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders recently said that to be in the Democratic Party is basically to be Mm. pro-choice. He and he's the Democratic frontrunner at this moment. The only person who's really been willing to say, okay, I could see space for pro-life people in the Democratic movement is Amy Klobuchar. Um, She's generally pretty moderate. She's not polling super well as far as um, the Democratic primaries, but it is 
surprising to hear her actually say that there could be pro-life people in the Democratic movement because that's not something that you hear from most Democrats. I'm going to shift the topic a little bit. Um, the other night at the Democratic debate, Elizabeth Warren made some comments about the life of a fetus. Um, do you think there are any pro-life echoes in that? Or do you think that, um, you know, it was maybe just a talking point to oppose who she was, you know, referencing on the stage? Yeah, I think for Elizabeth Warren, it was convenient to have that conversation in a way to kind of dunk on Mike Bloomberg, mm -hmm. which his comments were um, definitely reprehensible and easy to, easy to say that his perspective is not something that you should support. Um, just saying that you should just do away with a baby. Um, but Elizabeth Warren is a little bit hypocritical on that subject when she's saying that suddenly she values unborn lives, um, when in general she's been very, um, very vocal about her pro-choice policies. Mm -hmm. All right, one last question for you, Madeline. How can the rhetoric um, in the media or on television be changed today um, regarding pro-life principles? I think that a really good start is just going back to the love is blind piece to be honest about abortion. I think a lot of people um, want to use it for their political ends and present it in a way that is convenient for them. But just to be honest for the pro-life side, to be honest, that some women are in really difficult situations when they choose that and to show them grace while still saying that you believe that abortion is wrong. And then for pro-choice people to say um, that it's not just a simple decision, it's a very... Um, a very difficult thing for a woman to do. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Madeline. Back to you, Ben. Me. I love that. You know, um, Grace, it's something that's not talked about enough today. So that was Madeline Fry and Isabel Regi uh, coming to you from Hillsdale's CPAC coverage here. We are at the Gaylord National Convention Center. Boy, it's going to be a busy day, so we're so happy you're with us today. We've already heard from Tim Murtaugh, the Director of Communications for the Donald J. Trump campaign. That was just Madeline Fry from the Washington Examiner. And now um, we have Hannah Cox coming on. She's going to be interviewed today by our very own Stefan Kleinhens. So that should be happening here um, shortly. Stefan, thank you for joining us. We're going to let you take over here and uh, tell us a little bit about Hannah. Ben, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Hannah, thank you for joining us today. You're with the Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. What a fascinating idea. Can you just walk us through what the organization stands for? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to join you guys today. I love Hillsdale. Um, Concerns Concerned About the Death Penalty started here, actually. We launched nationally about eight years ago, and we are a network of conservatives across the country who are opposed to the death penalty, but for reasons that I think a lot of people haven't examined necessarily before. We know that the death penalty is extremely costly. We know that it's not a deterrent, and so it's money that we're spending on a program that doesn't work that could be better spent on solving more crimes or on programs that actually could work to deter violence in the first place. We also know it's a system that gets it wrong all the time. We've had one person exonerated from death row in this country for every nine executions. Given those numbers, we're certain we're executing innocent people every year in this country. And I think for anybody who calls themselves pro-life, that's highly problematic. And so we're working across the country to educate people about that and also working on repeal campaigns at the state level. So how has the movement been received considering that conservatives are very, very proud of being pro-death penalty. Even President Trump 
speaks on the death penalty. How, would, how, how do you fit in the conservative movement and convince people that this is something that perhaps they got wrong? Well, it's really interesting if you look at what's been happening across the country at the state level for about the past decade. We've seen the number of Republicans not only voting in favor for Peel, but actually sponsoring the bills and leading the charge increase tenfold. Last year, we had 10 states with 56 different Republican co-sponsors on these bills that were pushing to repeal at the state level. Uh, we've seen one state actually do it each year. New Hampshire did it last year with significant Republican support. And actually, just as of yesterday, Colorado did as well with significant Republican support. And so I think Trump's comments are actually a little bit off from where a lot of the people across the country are on this issue. And if you really dial into what's been transpiring during the past decade or so, I think you see that in the numbers. Do you at all feel that you kind of pushed out of the conservative movement and told, hey, this is something we're not going to really worry about right now? This is something that we as conservatives don't really find important? Do you, do you feel that? No. I actually get such a positive reaction across the country. What I take Typically, fine. You know, when people hear the name of our organization, it's two things. People are either really excited because this is something they've already been thinking through and struggling with, and they're excited to connect and, and talk more and flush it out a bit more in depth, or they're just very confused and they'll go, you know, I'm a conservative and, and I'm pro death penalty. What am I missing here? What what am what, what I not seeing? And so we have really great conversations. And I always say that support for the death penalty runs about a mile wide and an inch deep. I do see a lot of people who have an emotional sort of knee jerk reaction in favor of it, but typically within a five minute conversation or so, just examining all of the flaws within it and how it's actually operating. Most people will back off of that support pretty quickly. So let's get into some of those flaws. You, you mentioned financial issues. What, what other issues are there with the death penalty? Well, I think the innocence issues are really key for a lot of people. Again, that's one person exonerated for every nine executions in the country. There's been thousands of others who have had their trials reversed, have maybe had the sins overturned, and others who never got that extra um, examination that we often see pro bono outside groups providing, like the Innocence Project, to re-examine new evidence, test new DNA that maybe comes up. So we know that there's a lot of innocence issues in the system. And again, no Knowing that it's not a deterrent, I would suggest that the death penalty is actually a soft on crime system. We're spending about an extra million dollars per case. That's money that's coming from the trial level alone. About 70% of the costs are right there. So it's not because it takes too long. It's just that the trial to process is so expensive. Um, when you look at the fact that we're spending an extra million dollars per case and it's not a deterrent, that's a huge opportunity cost. And that's money that we're not spending on things that actually could make us safer. We only clear about 60% of homicides every year in this country. So that means for about 40% of murder victims, we're getting no justice at all for them, no closure. And it's something where we're letting a lot of crime go because we're spending too much money on something that simply just doesn't work. So, so, so we're looking at the financial issues of it, the innocence issues. How do you convince conservatives who are pro-life that on a moral level that this doesn't fit with their other principles? Is that an element that this, this organization is concerned with? I don't actually try to tell people what's moral and what's not. I think that we could probably have very genuine disagreements about the theory of the death penalty and whether or not it's ever ethical. I don't really think that that matters as much given how the system operates in practice. And so I think that's where the argument has to be had. As a conservative, I believe in limited government because I know government is prone to error. I know that it's prone to corruption. And we certainly see the death penalty and the criminal justice system as a whole are no exception from that. How does this all tie into Trump's efforts of criminal justice reform? It's been really interesting to watch Trump because, you know, on one hand, he's made some tremendous achievements on criminal justice reform, certainly more than the past two presidents before him. Um, and I think that we can all commend him on that. But in the same breath, he'll then turn around and, and suggest the death penalty for people that he's given clemency to. You know, Miss Alice Johnson, who he has famously uh, done a commercial about and really uh, champion and, and who I think is an excellent case for someone who should have been reintroduced to society. But she was in jail for selling drugs. Let's not forget that that was her sentence. And so for him to then turn around and suggest that we should apply the death penalty to people who sell drugs, 
thugs is a little bit of a hypocritical stance. In today's conservative movement, when you criticize Trump, do you feel like there's backlash, like a knee-jerk reaction to that? Or do you, do you, like you said earlier, people do receive your message pretty well. So when you go after and you say Trump is inconsistent with criminal justice, what, what's the response that you usually get? I think most people agree. I think that people know that Trump is not always the most consistent president, no matter what you think of him or if you like him. There's certainly areas that we see that he's not always uh, an ideologue. And I think that people recognize that pretty quickly. But in the, the day, I'm not really talking about Trump most of the time. We're working in the state level, and that's so separate from what happens federally. It's really not something that people care or talk about. I hardly ever hear um, from state lawmakers or from people when we're working around a legislature, you know, where's Trump on this or what's Trump doing? That's just not really part of the conversation. So here on Radio Free Hillsdale 11.7 FM, I'm Stefan Kleinhans, joined by Hannah Cox from Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. What a fascinating idea. What a fascinating message to conservatives. You mentioned some of the grassroots efforts here, some of the state-by-state -state issues. What is the long-term goal of the organization? Is it for um, you, you know, a conservative movement to change, or is it for individual states to kind of change the way they handle the death penalty? Because it does seem to come down to a state-by-state -state issue. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. We only have 20, uh, well now 24 as of yesterday, states that actually have the death penalty operation. 22 have repealed it legislatively. Four others have moratoriums. And of those that do still have it, over a third of them have not had an execution in a decade or more. So this is something that's really uh, on a downward trajectory. We do want to see it repealed. We want to see it ended ultimately. But a lot of our work comes from actually just talking to conservatives, doing the grassroots educational work, organizing people, providing a platform for people to raise their voices and have a meaningful impact on policy at a local level. I do think within the next decade or so, we're going to see only a couple states that would still have the death penalty and so we are part of those efforts, and we definitely are in favor of states repealing. I think that as a conservative, that's where this conversation should be had. It is a states' rights issue. It is something that should be decided locally. Um, and so we're, co we're constantly trying to expand. We have 14 state-based groups right now across the country that are doing that work and trying to just simply have these conversations and get the dialogue going. And those 14 states are within 24, those 24 that currently have the death penalty. Is that correct? That's correct. So, so final question for you here is, Brief history, you mentioned that you started at CPAC. How many years ago, and, and how have you seen the organization grow in that time? Yeah, so we actually started sort of organically in Montana by some local activists who were working on their legislature and, and found that a lot of conservatives agreed with them, and so then they took it national in 2013 here at CPAC, and we've been growing really quickly ever since. Like I said, we have 14 other state groups now, and I think we'll add another one or two this year as well. Hannah Cox from Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ben, we'll hand it back to you. All right. Thank you so much, Stefan. Um, and thank you, Hannah, as well. It's so cool to hear not only Madeline Fry talk about the pro-life movement uh, from the perspective of making sure that you have employed grace um, no matter what side you're on, but then also hearing conservatives that are pro-life in a different way when it comes to abolishing the death penalty. I mean, what was your main takeaway, Stefan, from, from that interview? Well, I think it is interesting that they're trying to talk about this issue, not necessarily in a moral sense. I mean, Hannah, Hannah said that. She's not trying to tell people what is moral and what isn't. But it's actually from a conservative standpoint, aside from all of that, that financially this doesn't make sense. That from a con everything else with limited government and all of the other aspects of the conservative movement, this just doesn't fit in. And that's a different... That's a different side of the argument that you don't necessarily hear, because when people talk about even conservatives say that they're against the death penalty, you usually hear moral arguments against it. Well, now she's bringing up more like, uh, you know, grounded conservative policy arguments toward, toward to that. And I think that's fascinating. It really is, you know, and um, most of today we're going to be talking from people on a variety of issues that conservatives care about. The pro-life one is one of those social ones that's a little bit different from the others, a little bit different from things that are going to be related to the main theme of today's event, socialism versus America. Mm -hmm. Because 
Pro-life used to be the type of thing where it didn't matter if you were conservative or liberal. That was an issue in its of itself, kind of separate. Maybe more conservatives were pro-life, but not, you know, there could be Democrats that could be pro-life. And, you know, uh, something Madeline Fry mentioned earlier was there was a time when Democrats could say that and they wouldn't get attacked. Now Amy Klobuchar is the only one on the Democratic stage earlier this month that would, you know, admit that there could be a place in the Democratic Party for people who are pro-life. That is fascinating. I think you also see in the conservative movement that there are a lot of differences. And someone like Hannah can come on here and say, you know, we're against the death penalty. And most conservatives won't agree with us, but we can have that conversation. And that's, like you said, maybe that's something that the left can't do. Um, So, go ahead. Yeah, I I got a question for you on this, though, because you have some some opinions on this, I know, because I've talked to you about them. Um, By the way, if you're joining us now, you're listening to our special edition coverage of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. My name is Ben Dietrich, along here with my colleague, Stefan Kleinhens, this is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We're coming to you from National Harbor, Maryland, right outside D.C. So, you know, Stefan, your opinions. Um, what can conservatives do, though, on the pro-life side to perhaps attract a wider base? Or is there anything that they're doing wrong? Um, you know, one of the things I love about having somebody like Anna, Hannah Cox on is that she brings up a side of the pro-life yeah. movement that you don't think of. We always talk about abortion. But it's really bigger than that. Yeah, it's about you know being against the idea that you should uh, uh, choose to abort a pregnancy based on you know whether or not they have some sort of deficiency in their genes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, em- embracing that every life matters comes in many forms. What are, what are your big takes on this? Well, I think the problem is when you have conservatives talk about being pro-life in the sense of abortion. The, the criticism that comes back from the left is, well, you're pro-life you know, when, when the child's in the womb, but do you care for the child after it's, after it's born? Do you care for the child when, it lives, when it's at the southern border? And I think that those are the questions, that, that's fair criticism to conservatives, and they need to answer those questions. They need to say, yes, while we care for the unburn, unborn, let's show how we also care for them once they're born. And, and of course, you know, there's always going to be criticism from the left, and there's always going to be... The, the problem with the, the abortion issue is that you have... People on the left arguing on one level saying that it's healthcare, and people on the right arguing saying, no, it's life. And you're not even having a, you can't even have a conversation. You guys aren't on the same page. But I think what the, what the conservative movement can do better when people like Hannah here is to say, we care about life at all stages. And we also want to talk about how that fits into us as conservatives in general. And, and like Hannah said, you know, it's not necessarily just about why it's morally wrong to have the death penalty, but also why it fits into our beliefs of smaller government and less government intervention and rights for all people. I think yeah. that, that really is, is what, it, when you break that pro-life movement apart and you, you look at it from all ends, as a conservative, you perhaps have a better argument and you have a more ground to stand on when you say it's not just about the child in the womb, but it's about all people and all of their rights at all stages in life. Yeah. You know, another big topic we haven't really mentioned on this is the idea of euthanasia. Um, you know, this is something that is legal in parts of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's been talked about, I believe it might even be legal in the state of Oregon. But the idea that somebody can have themselves killed by choice because they're old or, you know, in Europe, this is an yeah. actual thing where there have been instances where children of the parents, National Review has done a lot of this, children of the parents kill their parents because they don't want to take care of them anymore. This is not an exaggeration. Yeah. You can go online and read about this in National Review. Oftentimes it's an accident uh, what actually happens. But in other countries, it's considered morally non-objectable. It's, it's kind of the, the idea, it kind of ties into the idea when you have socialized health care that 
hey, you know, we don't want to have to pay for these old people because they're not really doing much for us today. And, you know, so Pop and Mom, one of them has Alzheimer's. The other one has dementia. I have my own life here. Why, why should I have to take care of them? No, that, that's fascinating. And it is interesting. And again, like the conservatives kind of need to come to the table in a sense and say, what are we as a pro-life movement? Yeah. You know, what do we but, stand for? And, and to, tie, to tie back into something you said, yeah. and I want to leave us with this, then we have to go for this hour. But we'll be back again, top of the hour, more interviews to come. I, want, I just want to leave by saying, you know, Stefan made the point, Hannah made the point that you, this is also a political issue. I think believing in life is believing in what the mission statement of this country is. It is believing in the Declaration of Independence that declares all men are created equal. That equality principle that entitles you to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's you know, recognizing how special each and every human being is. More on this issue as we come today, but more on many more issues. When we come back in this next hour, we'll be talking about the theme of this year's CPAC, America versus Socialism. What does that mean? We'll have people like Larry O'Connor. We will have um, Jeffrey Lord, a former Reagan communications specialist. He has been supporting the president on CNN, Fox News, all the big cable networks. We'll have them as well as Ronna McDaniel, the head of the Republican Party, a Michigan native as well, and a frequent guest of American View. Back on this next hour of our special coverage, we are coming to you live, or coming to you almost live, about a 30-minute delay going on, from the National Harbor uh, of Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, American View WRFH. Check out the Radio Free Hillsdale pages as well, where you can find all of our interviews for the next few days. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Welcome back to American View, folks, where Hillsdale meets the nation. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Welcome to our listeners in Michigan, but also to our listeners all across the country online as well. This is our coverage of CPAC coming to you from National Harbor in Maryland. With us right now is Jeffrey Lord. Jeffrey is a former White House political director for President Reagan. He has also uh, advised, in many capacities, the, the current president, President Trump. He's the author of a book called Swamp Wars. You can find that on Amazon. And he also writes for American Spectator. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ben and Alex. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, the honor is ours. And you know we're really excited to talk to you today because the theme of this year's CPAC is America versus Socialism. And this isn't the first time that you know this has been kind of a crisis in the conservative movement. We had to take on socialism. But now with the possible, you know, presidential nominee for the Democratic Party being Bernie Sanders, a lot of people are asking what's the best way to attack this? In your experience, what are, you know, three major points that President Trump and Republicans need to, you know, hone, you know, carry home if they are to stand a chance? Well, let me start by telling you a Reagan story. Please. Uh, in, in, of course, when he became president, the Cold War was raging and had been going on since 1945. And there was much about detente and, and getting along and all this kind of thing. And uh, his national security advisor asked him, you know, what, what was his view of the Cold War? And Ronald Reagan, in typical Reagan style, said, we win, they lose. That was it. 
and he went on to make sure that that's what we did. Uh, I've had this conversation with President Trump when he was a private citizen. There was a book out in the day by uh, a French author named Thomas Piketty, and it was advocating socialists socialism and I asked then private citizen Trump and I have this on tape still (laughs) and he went on uh, chapter and verse about the ills of socialism and the answer is take it on head on I was just listening to Charlie Kirk uh, of uh, Turning Point USA and uh, his point is this is this is what's being taught in colleges and that's one of the first places that so we have to go. Let me, let me, that kind of leads yeah. into the next question. What are the big differences now versus when you were White House political director for President Reagan in the threat of socialism in America today? The, the big difference is then it was international in the sense that we had a real live socialist country, the Soviet Union, with nuclear missiles, I might add. Uh, this is in its own way a, a different and, and more difficult situation because this is in the culture. This is in colleges, except for Hillsdale. Thank you very much. We're very fortunate. Uh, Yes, exactly. And so this has to be fought on on a whole different level. Uh, And everybody has to be involved in this. This is why I'm so glad Matt Schlapp told me, uh, said to a group of us uh, last night, that, that CPAC was sold out. Wow. What does that tell you? That that's good news here. Uh, and the role of conservative media, whether it's uh, what you're doing here at Hillsdale or whether it's Rush Limbaugh and Sean and, and Mark Levin on the radio, and, and uh, I do a lot of local radio around the country, uh, people are on board with this fight. And then, of course, there's Fox News yeah. and, and the Internet. We all have to pitch into this because this is, this is being made culturally attractive and the, uh, and, the, and the cultural aspect of it, it's really interesting because culture changes through the years. Obviously, some things change the same. It's still socialism we're fighting. Right. But the way in which it's being sold is a little bit different. Americans now more than ever, a lot of people out there believe that the history of America was is rooted in oppression. You can hear Bernie Sanders, a presidential candidate, tell the country that we were founded on racist principles. Well, you know, they, they uh, my, my uh, Democrat friends uh, leave out something very interesting that is very accurate historically. I used to talk about this on CNN, and, and this was making me less popular over yeah. there. <laughs> and, and Do they still have you on? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. Um, but I do go on with Sean and, and some of the others. But here, here, let me just, speaking of history, geek that I am, I have gone back and read every presidential platform of both parties. Wow. The first platform was the Democrats in 1840. And I noticed something very interesting. The first six platforms of the Democratic Party all supported slavery. Yeah. Then, with the end of the Civil War, they moved on to segregation. And the next 20 platforms supported segregation. And now, and this is what would drive the people at CNN crazy, and now we have identity politics, which I call the son of segregation. So, Jeffrey, I, I got to say, this is something we talk about on American View here. I, I completely agree. I don't know why it is so controversial to compare the Democratic Party of today 
to the one that advocated for slavery. Exactly. Because in my mind, what Lincoln advocated for, the abolition of slavery, the, you know, the protection and the conservation of our Constitution, that is the same fight Republicans have today. Yes, it we is. We are defending that equality principle that is the mission statement of this country. How do we sell that to young people today that don't even read the Constitution? Yeah, I mean, therein lies the problem. And... Uh, I, I think we're going to have a major showdown with what I call big education. And there's an opening here in this sense. You've got all the Democrats out there saying free college tuition and all this. It's just too expensive, student debt and all this kind of thing. My question is, why is it so expensive? Yeah. <laughs> and where does this come from? Well, it comes from big education, as it were paying uh, all sorts of, you know, rounding up the money from, in a lot of cases, unwitting uh, graduates, and then uh, teaching this stuff to kids and, and jacking up the price of their education so that they are yeah. <laughs> struggling for decades to pay off their student debt. I mean, when I went to, I went to Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, a while ago, and uh, it was, uh, the grand total was $16,000 for four years. Holy cow. I, you know, I'm not sure that gets you through one year yeah. at a lot of these colleges now. It's, it's and, and there is a insane. reason for it. It's insane. Absolutely. And, and I, in my opinion, it's not enough just to say the government, you know, should not forgive all these loans. Conservatives as well have to tackle the issue of rising costs of college education, rising costs of health care. Maybe it's the government, in fact, that has been part of the cause of these things. Yeah. yeah. Well, and of course, you know, Ronald Reagan's famous saying that uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> uh, so many people buy into that, including yeah. colleges. Uh, and one of the things I think President Trump is doing that is really great is saying that if they're going to, you know, uh, censor conservative speakers, if they're going to do all this kind of thing, there goes their federal money. Right. Good for him. Yeah, and I commend that as well. You know, it's, it's nice to finally have somebody standing up. Last question for you. Um, we're here with Jeffrey Lord right now. He's a former uh, political director for the White House. Um, you can check out his book, Swamp Wars, on Amazon, or check out his writing on American Spectator. I want to ask you, Jeffrey, advice for President Trump going into 2020. One of the things I love sharing with our listeners is that 1984 Morning in America advertisement. I asked Tim right. Murtaugh about it yesterday. He's the director of communications now for Trump. Do you think that President Trump, I mean, he's kind of brought up stuff like that. Do you think there is some sort of narrative story in line with, you know, the same one that President Reagan told that deserves to be told today? There is. And, and, if you, and I would bet he'd say this on Saturday when, we, when he comes here to CPAC to close it out. But he gives a very stirring ending at his speeches that we're all one country, you know, all races and creeds and, and all of this sort of thing. It's very moving. And I think that that in itself is a great commercial right there. Yeah. I think I completely agree. I mean, coming together, people see him as such a divisive figure. But perhaps there is an end in sight, you know, the night is darkest before the dawn. And after the, right. all the, the fighting that we have and the fights of socialism, maybe there is something beyond that where That's identity right. politics can finally be done. That's with. right. We are all here and we're on the case. That's right. This has been Jeffrey Lord, everybody. Um, he's been great. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for joining Absolutely. us today. Absolutely. Thank you. That was Jeffrey Lord. Like we said, he is a former White House political director. Um, I'm here now joined by Alex Nestor, the co-host of American View. Um, 
This has been American Viewer Hillsdale Meets the Nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. It is Thursday, February 27th. We are in the second hour of our coverage of CPAC, and it's been incredible so far. Alex, what were your takeaways from Jeffrey? Yeah, so I think when it comes to um, socialism, it's not something new. We have seen this happen time and time again in our country, and, and it's back in full force now, and it is something truly that we as conservatives need to fight and fight hard against. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's so fascinating how somebody like Jeffrey Lord can have the political insight of the Reagan years, and, and the points he can make today... He, he can not only establish what was true then, but also adjust that case for the problems of today, you know, because uh, a lot of young people, of course, talk about, well, this isn't boomer socialism we're deal- dealing with. It is slightly different. But joining us now uh, is Larry O'Connor. Boomer he is a, 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 yeah, I don't boomer know. Would you classify yourself as a boomer? I don't know. No, think you're it's so funny. My, uh, my 15-year-old called me one day, like a few months ago, when the whole boomer thing was raging. And said, Dad, are you a boomer? <laughs> I was like, no, no, son, I'm not. <laughs> although, although I realize now that pretty much anyone over 26 is a boomer. Uh, that's uh, like we're they, all being painted well, with that. The, the, the bars. No, but I'm Gen X. I, I proudly mm-hmm. embrace Gen X. It's kind of like Social Security. You know, the age just keeps on dropping. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, where it should be going the other way. But uh, Hello, Radio Free Hillsdale. <laughs> Yeah. I love you guys. You know, I'm Thank a Michigan you. guy. I grew, oh, no I was kidding. born in Detroit, grew up in Plymouth, right by Livonia, All right. near Ann Arbor. I got family in Novi and Ypsilanti and uh, up in Traverse City. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I'm talking about Michigan, other than the fact well, that Hillsdale is in Michigan. And we're, and we're so glad to have you. For those of you Thank who don't know, that you know, Larry has a show on both in Washington, D.C., on the stations there, and then also on the West Coast in, in L.A. In Los Angeles, yeah. WMAO in D.C. and KBC in Los Angeles. And, and he writes for Town Hall. I, I mean, how do you find time to do all that? You know, it it's funny. It I, I love what I do, and therefore I find time to do it. You always find time to do what you love, right? And That's right. the radio part is, I'll be honest, I mean, let's face it. Come on, you just you just sit down and you start talking, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, there is a lot of show prep, and you got to do a lot of reading, but I'm doing that reading anyway, whether I'm on the radio or not. You're talking about Jeff Lord. I read Jeff Lord's columns when I was your age. Yeah. And that's not a, you know, I'm not talking about how old he is or how long he's been. The, I'm <laughs> just he saying. A boomer? I, uh, yeah, he's definitely a boomer. <laughs> uh, but I have been reading columns and being immersed in conservative media and, and, and all these things forever. Yeah. I just get to talk about it when I'm done reading it. So I, I love it. And, and there's always time for it. Absolutely. And so, you know, you, you're doing your show out here this week. Yes. Um, how much do you think socialism and the conservative case needs to be adjusted? To ask you the same question we asked mm-hmm. Jeffrey Lord with the the problems of today. You know, how is it different than it was back when you would read those Jeffrey Lord columns? In it's, the 1980s? it's it's not in in the in the uh, principled valued aspect of it because the ideas are the same. The only difference back then is that there was an existential threat with a giant empire of totalitarian nations pointing missiles at us. Yeah. Um. But but understand that aggressive posture was all born out of the idea of totalitarian authoritarianism. You know, it's, it's funny, my column in Town Hall today is about this. Bernie Sanders, you know, he was defending his praise for Fidel Castro this week, said, I believe in democracy, not authoritarianism, which is the two have nothing to do with each other. Democracy is a means of choosing a policy or a leader yeah. or a representative. Right. That's, but you can elect an authoritarian. You know, I mean, exactly. democracy is a means to get someone in office. Once they're there, they'll think about everything the Democrats propose right now. Yeah. It's not just Bernie. 
uh, uh, medical takeover of the, or excuse me, government takeover of the medical industry. That is authoritarianism. That is the government saying, you must go to this doctor, you must get this treatment, you cannot exercise your freedoms or your liberties. Green New Deal. You can't drive that car. You can't drive at all. You can't eat that much red meat. It's the government knowing better than you and ripping you of your freedoms and your liberties. To me, it's the same argument that worked for me during Reagan and should work now. Yeah, and the same you know, kind of trust in experts that yes. you know, people are so attached to. We're always at the mm -hmm. same experts who told us Hillary was a shoe in to win the election. I right. want to trust them with my doctor. Not, not to pull a Hillsdale moment either, but you know. Bernie Sanders talks about democracy. It, you read the classics, you read the old books and the Greek democracies and all that. They saw a problem with democracy in that it could trample the rights of the minority. That's what an authoritarian does. You know, he, he Often doesn't believe through the means of democracy. Yeah, in those those <laughs> rights that prevent you yes. from doing whatever the heck you want. When you're in charge. So do you get extra credit for that now? <laughs> I hope. Dr. Arndt, are you listening? Is Larry of Arndt? this going to be on the test? I'm very concerned. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully Hillsdale College president Larry Arndt hears us right now. I'm very proud of us. I'm sure he listens. But, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's interesting, though, I guess, for Bernie Sanders. I loved another thing that I saw you published on your Twitter, and that was comparing him to Corbyn in England, the yeah. leader of the Labor Party. Do you think that's really a possibility? You said on Twitter, for all our listeners joining us, that Bernie Sanders may do... Uh, to the Democratic Party, what Corbyn did to the Labor Party in England, where they lost big. Yeah, I do. I think that they could lose big. And 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 oh, sorry, I blew out your ears there, didn't I? I was talking too loud. No, I do <laughs> that a okay. lot. I often I often do radio as if I don't actually need a microphone. I want like everyone in yeah. the Greater Washington area to hear me by opening the window. I apologize. <laughs> I do. I think I think that this is a and I think and listen, this isn't me talking. Democrats are saying it. Le leading Democrats are saying this is a major problem. Bernie Sanders is going to, you know, make us lose an election. But here's the important thing. Uh, what happened in 2008? And, and John McCain is a great American and a great man. He was a really bad politician and he was not a great candidate for president. And not only did Barack Obama win, but he won across the board. They had supermajority in the Senate. They were able to do whatever they wanted. That was devastating for them. And it was, I mean, excuse me, it was devastating for the Republican Party, but it forced the Republican Party to get better. It forced us to confront a decision, frankly, a conversation that we didn't fully have and reconcile until yeah. Trump. The Democrats will, if they do nominate Bernie Sanders, I think that it will be very bad for them. I think they're going to lose a lot, but I honestly hope it forces them to confront this finally. They've been avoiding this socialist issue for decades. Mm -hmm. They've been flirting with it. They've been, it's they've not, been it's paying not just, it lip service. It's, it's not just socialism. It, it, to... to um, Lord's credit before this is identitarian yes. socialism. This is identity it's the politics, status, the intersectionality, it's all of those things where we judge. They literally have turned Martin Luther King's ideas upside down by saying we don't judge you based on what you stand for, based on what your values are, your principles, your faith, your morals, your ethics. We judge you and determine your value based on your skin mm -hmm. color, based on your sexuality, based on you know what have you. Yeah, that's literally anti-American. It's everything against what we believe. And this is being taught in universities, too. Oh, I know. <laughs> and is that something... Uh, it's funny. I've got one kid at UCLA, and I've got one kid at the Naval Academy. <laughs> wow. Where, where's <laughs> the Hillsdale and, and they're one year away from you, each other. You need other. to have one more kid and get one at I Hillsdale. got two more kids coming up. Okay. So, Dr. Arn, you know, <laughs> let's talk.
But and so I know I can see two mm -hmm. polar different mm -hmm. college experiences going on there. And you're right. Yeah, go ahead. Though. Do you I, think I, that's I that's changed over time? I mean, the progressive movement within the universities, of course, hasn't started in the past ten years. This is something that started decades right. ago. But have you seen, um, perhaps since the time you've been in college to the time now that your kids are in college, has it changed? Has it become worse? What are you seeing? Well, I, I think from from my experience or from my um, observation, it's gotten worse. But but here I'm going. to you know, just want to give you a quick little nugget of news here. Maybe that maybe this will actually get heavy. I didn't go to college. I'm actually I, I, I know I'm a high Wonderful. school grad. I got out of high school and went right into the uh, the profession that I mm -hmm. loved at the time, which was not radio. I worked in theater, of yeah. all things, not as an actor. I managed a theater, but I just went to New York, walked into an office of a Broadway theater owner, and said, "Hey, I love this business. I want to work there." Mm -hmm. So I didn't go to college. But what's funny is five years later, as I managed a theater, I was interviewing kids who had just come out of liberal arts colleges yeah. who were my age, mm -hmm. and yeah. Uh, 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 it was already there, mm -hmm. but yes, it's times a hundred. I think it's, it's right worse. Now. You know, you're it's talking times a hundred. Charlie Kirk. I mean, the fact that we need TPUSA to be as volatile as it is, mm -hmm. I think, is just a signal of the times. Yeah. that we need Donald Trump. But the fact that, that <laughs> listen, but but see, I always try to be as optimistic as possible with my listeners and my readers to say, yes, things are rough, things are challenging. It's hard to sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel. The fact that TPUSA there, the fact that Young America's Foundation is there, the fact that Campus Reform is there, the fact that Hillsdale College is not only still there, but bigger than it's ever been yeah. and more important than it's ever been, that tells us that, listen, as long as those institutions are there, as long as uh, we keep that faith, we, we got a shot at it. Yeah. We just need to keep walking and talking the walk. So true, so true. Larry O'Connor, everybody. Larry, thank you for I have no for, idea for what walking us. and talking the walk means. <laughs> Can we edit that? Are we live? Oh, I'm in trouble. That was terrible. All right. Well, thank you guys for having me. Thank hey. you. And hello, Michigan. Hello back to all his listeners as well. That was Larry O'Connor. He uh, is the host of shows on both the East Coast and D.C. as well as on the West Coast. He is a radio host for Salem. He writes for Town Hall. Pretty cool stuff. You're joining us right now with our coverage of CPAC. Um, we are coming to you from National Harbor in Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. I'm Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. This is a special edition of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. We're going to be back with uh, more guests shortly. Um, this, of course, uh, broadcast, we've been talking to all sorts of people this hour. Alex, what's been your favorite part so far at CPAC? Well, I think my favorite part, of course, um, is seeing people that you really only, you know, see on TV and being able to actually, like, interact with these people. Um, also, I think seeing so many young people here is really important. That gives me a lot of hope when you hear statistics of how many Gen Zers or how many millennials are pro-socialism. It gives me a lot of hope to see a lot of young people like us here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the, the coolest thing for me is to see this this is a very big moment for conservatism in America and I think we're finally seeing what the post Trump conservatism looks like and it's conferences at, the, at like these where you know maybe you don't agree with what everybody's saying mm -hmm. but the ideas are being thrown out there and maybe it's not even the ideas on the stage maybe it's a guest we have on but you get all these bright and young and older boomer Conservatives, conservatives coming together because they, especially on this issue, know they are not socialists. And we can at least unite on that. That is an opportunity to build a coalition um, the likes of which we have never seen. The, power, the part that Jeffrey Lord brought up gets me excited because the fact that he saw that 
and I, I've talked about that on this show, for me is pretty cool. I think the Republican Party needs to come back to the principles it was founded on. The equality principle of the mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence, that all people are created equal, that we should be judged, not by the color of our skin, but by you know our character, and that we all deserve equal rights, and that our government exists to serve those rights. That's what Abraham Lincoln fought for. That's what Frederick Douglass fought for. That's what Hillsdale College was started to defend. Was founded it, yes. and, and we're seeing President Trump um, restate the fact that the, pre- the Republican Party also stands for that today. This has been our coverage at CPAC, everybody. We'll be back shortly. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation, coming to you live from CPAC on behalf of Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Welcome back, everybody. You're still listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name's Ben Dietrich. And I'm Alex Nestor. And we're coming to you from CPAC at the Gaylord Convention Center in National Harbor, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Boy, it's been a, a great day so far. Speaking with us shortly will be Senator Joni Ernst. She is up for re-election. Um, pretty cool person, and she'll be on in just a short minute. But, boy, it's been a crazy day. Later on today, Vice President Pence will be speaking. We are going to have interviews all day long with some of the smartest and the brightest young and old conservatives uh, around this town. Yeah, that's the joke that's been playing so far. (laughs) So we're going to keep on, you know, um, telling those stories and having those interviews. What are you looking forward to most, Alex, as this weekend continues? You know what? I'm looking forward to, of course, I'm a very extroverted person. I love meeting people and talking to people and seeing all these people come through here. Um, I'm really looking forward to the, um, you know, the chance of listening to Nigel Farage speak at some point. Um, he had a big Brexit victory earlier this year on January 31st. So it'll be great to hear from him about that, something he's been working on for, I believe, 27 years. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, you know, we got to talk about what it was like when he left the EU on this show. And now you get to talk to him afterwards. That's pretty cool. I'm very excited. The Godfather, as they are calling him in the the playbook here, you know, in the, the program, the Godfather of Brexit. And he's back in the United States. He was at President Trump's State of the Union address, and he's finally succeeded. I feel like so much has changed since the last time you interviewed him. Right. So at this point last year, um, Theresa May was still the prime minister, and Remainers, generally speaking, that you know term Remainers, people who wanted the UK to remain in the EU, still had a majority in Parliament. And of course, those two things have changed in the past year. So I'm looking forward to asking him about that. Um, You know, this time last year, it seemed pretty dismal, you know, the hopes of getting Brexit done soon. And, you know, that's, uh, it happened. It happened just under a month ago. No, and and, you know, so Farage will be here. We're going to hear, hopefully we're going to hear from uh, Crenshaw later Mm -hmm. as well on the show. We have an interview scheduled with Charlie Kirk, that you can hear, um, you will be able to hear that online. So that won't be necessarily on the air today, but if you enjoy all of our coverage here at CPAC as we talk about America versus socialism, the, the theme for this year's show, you can log on to soundcloud.com slash Radio Free Hillsdale, where all of our interviews will be located as this weekend um, continues. And in addition to that, you can follow myself on Twitter, Ben underscore D-I-E-T, 
D, as well as Alex Nestor. I'm at Alex Nestor 2020. So it's going to be a moment here. You know, there's so many fans around. That's part of the atmosphere at CPAC is that you got one interview scheduled and then, <laughs> you know, everybody wants to talk to her. So we're waiting a moment here for mm -hmm. her to finish talking with some, some fans out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, they deserve to talk with her just as much as we do. Isn't that right, Alex? Um, sure. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. They absolutely do. They absolutely uh, do. The I'm honesty sure. is so true. Well, I'm sure, you know, she has probably some people who traveled here from her home state of Iowa. Um, maybe yeah. partially to see her speak. Yeah. So. so the cool thing about Joni Ernst, which we're going to talk about with her, is the fact that she became a senator in 2014. And uh, when she became a senator, she won the seat in kind of a, a very loud fashion. She had some brash advertising. She is a military officer. She is a mother. And um, she was kind of a symbol of these Tea Party conservatives fighting back against President Trump. And we're, we're seeing that now as well. Um, you know, she, she has molded so well into the, the movement of senators that um, a movement of senators that, that, that we've seen move forward to support the president mm -hmm. um, as, as he has kind of become the leader of the Republican Party. And the adjustments that we have seen has uh, is, is been very interesting. So... We're going to continue to cover this as, as we go on today. Um, it sounds like now she, she's going to be with us in, in just a little bit, but, but we are waiting to, to hear back from her as, as she continues on um, talking with her fans. But So, Alex, tell me, you know, later today, who are you talking to? What other interviews can we look forward to as we continue, um, you know, interviewing all these great conservatives? Sure. So... Um, we're talking to Hillsdale alumna Kaylee McGee at some point in time today. She currently writes for the Washington Examiner, and she was my predecessor at the Hillsdale Collegian as the opinions editor. She was the opinions editor for the 2018-2019 um, school year, and I am currently the opinions editor, so it'll be great to speak to Kaylee. I will also be speaking with the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. Um, I've got some good questions for her about um, Trump's re-election campaign, what the RNC is working on. What are some key states that Republicans hope to um, take take back or keep um, coming th in this coming election, perhaps in con congressional races as well as with governorships? Um, and then hopefully Nigel Farage is stopping by today as well. Yeah, so we're, we're going to see all that um, as we continue uh, continue today. Uh, some congressmen as well, Mark Meadows, I think we're going to we're hear from mm -hmm. him, which should be exciting. Joni, uh, Senator Ernst will be back with us. It sounds like, though, by the time she talks to us, it's not going to be until after she has finished her segment on, or after we have finished our segment on the air here. So you will be able to hear that full interview. But you're going to make sure to log on to soundcloud.com slash Hillsdale where you can find that interview or just you know check out our Twitter pages, uh, Radio Hillsdale on Twitter. Um, and there we will have that, that full interview available for you to hear as we ask her about what her strategy is moving forward, as well as an important thing, which is health care and drug prices. You know, Senator Ernst has been one of the Republicans that, for the first time, talking about how the Republican Party has changed. We are seeing a movement on the right to address the fact that the left wants full single-payer health care. The right has to do something in return to kind of, you know, offer their own solutions mm -hmm. to the rising costs of health care. Because 
to the credit of some people we talked to earlier in this hour, we heard from, you know, one of those people, which was, of course, uh, Jeffrey Lord. And then, of course, we heard later on after that, we had uh, our good friend Larry Larry Mm O'Connor. And and Larry, you know, made the point as well, as well as Jeffrey, that, you know, education today is so expensive. Healthcare is so expensive. The theme this year is America versus socialism. Well, if we're not going to go down the road of socialism, then what are we going to do to at least, you know, ensure that those costs are something that's affordable to Americans to the extent that it should be, or at least like it was before, if we if we can, because I think right now the status quo in many ways is not necessarily going to cut it. Well, and I think the status quo is whenever we have a problem, it's something that the government needs to address. And what happens in this situation is we're kind of caught in this vicious cycle of the government addresses the problem, it gets worse, and then the government has to continue addressing the problem with different band-aids, different regulations, what have you. And that's the reason why the cost of education is so high today. When the government started um, providing you know, uh, um, federal loans for students to go to college, um, of course, more students ended up going to college. And of course, then the universities, knowing that the government was going to back up um, you know, the, the cost of education, the universities are going to raise their prices. So that's what we've seen happen. And of course, now we have people on the left, like Bernie Sanders, who they want to make college entirely free. So what is that going to do? But of course, um, raise prices, at least on the end of you know yeah. what we're paying in taxes. This whole weekend is about debating those issues. It is about debating whether or not, you know, we should do something to, to deal with those problems on the conservative side. It used to be that healthcare companies largely would remain, you know, unattacked by both parties. Even Obamacare, you know, it just essentially gave them more money to sell prices at inflated costs that were subsidized by the government. We're seeing pushback on that now. The parties have dramatically changed from where they were four years ago. And this year's theme, America versus socialism, in my mind, really represents that because on one side you see the rise of people like Bernie Sanders on the left mm-hmm. and he is the you know the embodiment of the socialist movement in America today and and, and he is clearly you know the the populist progressive on that side and with Donald Trump i think the more that Bernie Sanders becomes the front runner the more that Trump becomes the defender of America, which people say, okay, what the heck does that mean? It sounds like a cartoon or a what meme. is America? What, what does is that America? Mean? Yes. And that's that's you know the same question of on American view. Well, the mission statement of this country is is founded in that Declaration of Independence, that equality principle. Um, and so we'll continue to discuss this as we we continue today. But now we have a guest. He I, I talked to him now two years in a row. This is the third year. Um, Hans von Spakowski. I said I said that correctly. You, correct, you Hans? get you get special bonus points for you got my name right. Excellent. Which is, which is better than some of the hosts on Fox. All right, all right. <laughs> you know, well, we're very professional here at, at here Radio are. Free Hillsdale, and uh, I love talking to Hans. He works over at the Heritage Foundation. He talks a lot, or it does a lot of his work. I believe his research is on um, justice and uh, all sorts of constitutional issues. I saw an article earlier today that you had written about the Electoral College and right. the movement to change us from the Electoral College to uh, a national vote. 
Now, the theme of this year's CPAC, we've been talking about it all morning. It's America versus socialism. And this is one of those issues where we could really see America itself fundamentally change itself if we accept a national vote instead of an electoral college. Would you agree with that, that the electoral uh, college matters that much? Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And what people need to understand is, look, the main reason that the framers of the Constitution uh, put in electoral college, uh, the reasons for that are even more important today. And what they said was, look, if we have a national popular vote system, they were afraid that candidates for the presidency would only go to the big cities go to the urban areas, they would ignore the rest of the country, they would ignore the smaller, yeah. less populated, more rural states. Um, all you gotta do is look at a map of the United States, look at the huge populations in urban areas like uh, LA, New York, Chicago, and you can see that happening if we switch to a national popular vote system. Uh, the, the folks who would choose who's the President of the United States would just be the people who live in those big cities. And they would ignore, they could ignore, the rest of America. Yeah, with the electoral college system, the larger states still have an advantage, but giving even the smallest states, no matter how small their population, places like Wyoming and Montana, three electoral college votes, gives them a say in the pre who, who becomes president. Hmm. And so, if if we were to embrace this type of national system, I mean, what do you think the repercussions would be of that? I mean, it would be unrest, right? Yeah, look, the system we have today also means that instead of having a national election, the candidates for president have to win a series of regional elections all across the country. They have to try to attract people in the Northeast, the Southwest, the Far West, the Midwest, the South, uh, every part of the country, that means you get somebody who um, appears, uh, appeals to a wider and a greater cross-section of the American people. With a national popular vote system, all you need to do is, is um, uh, uh, attract the voters in these dense urban yeah. areas, which tend to be much more liberal than so, other parts of the country. So you've been an attorney for quite some years. Yes. And we, won't, we won't say how many. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you specialize in these legal issues, especially when it comes to the idea of conception of justice. Uh, right. So liberals argue it is only just to have a national vote because the majority should win in a just system. And I, I gotta um, give a real quick answer because we have Senator Ernst here. I, I right. hate to kick you off, but I gotta talk to the Senator here in just a moment. But I, I wanna hear your take on this, Hans. Uh, we always have a fear of tyranny of the majority. And if that were in fact true, then why don't we let a majority of voters in the country get rid of the First Amendment, yeah. the Second Amendment, uh, and all these rights that people might not like, like religious freedom. Yeah, I agree so much. Hans von Spokowski, thank you so much for joining sure. us from the Heritage Foundation, everybody. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so now, as we continue here on this American View broadcast, we are getting ready for Senator Ernst from Iowa. And uh, here she comes right now. So... This has been American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Joining us now is Senator Joni Ernst. 
Senator, it is an honor to have you on our show today. Oh, it's wonderful be, to be with you. Thank you. And so congratulations on um, running for re-election. I think it's, it's yes. great. You know, six years goes by fast, I hear, in the Senate. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> and, you know, I remember the first time you ran because I was in high school and your advertising was, yes. was so great. Oh, and it was yes. so bombastic. You. you know, that first ad that, that showed you as both <laughs> a military officer, a mother, and a strong conservative. It had all the liberals in my class freaking out. Oh, you know, yes. They didn't know what to oh, think. Yes. So what's the strategy this time around? What is your message to Iowans as you head into 2020? Well, again, just to show that I am a strong independent voice uh, representing uh, Iowa and all that is great about Iowa and her citizens, serving them, uh, representing them in Washington, D.C. So I am a fighter. Uh, we know that to be true and to continue fighting for the very values that uh, our nation was founded on. And yeah. if you look at CPAC right now, my gosh, the, the title, America versus yeah. Socialism. That's what I'm fighting against. And, and that's so true. I mean, I think this, this title is so fitting this year. One of the ways in which you are fighting that is fighting the, the, you know, the continued fight for nationalized health care. And I understand that you and other members of the mm -hmm. Senate have been sponsoring bills and legislation that would lower the prices of uh, drug prescriptions. Do you want right. to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And this is an issue that I hear about from Iowans all the time. When I'm out doing my 99-county tour across Iowa every year, I hear that there are folks struggling to afford prescription medications. And so we are working through both the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee as well as the Judiciary Committee on patent reform, yeah. on lowering those drug costs. I mean, there's so many ways that we can do this. We have a number of bills that would lower prescription drug costs. We hope to get those over the finish line. It's a bipartisan issue um, and one that Iowans really care about. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe five, six years ago, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that you wouldn't have seen conservatives really want to do anything that would interfere with what the drug companies were doing. At least that's what people have asserted. Why do you think there's been a change and a push towards um, dealing with these drug prices? Well, be, one, because those costs continue to go up. And and I hear people that, uh, you know, they, they will say that they like Obamacare, but you know what? Obamacare did not control costs. What it did, it allowed um, people to gain access to insurance, but it didn't control these yeah. costs. And so prescription drugs continue to go up and up and up. And when you can't afford a medication that is there to save your life, what is the point? Right. So we are trying to find a way to um, be responsible about it, still encourage free market principles as well as research and development dollars, but uh, to make sure that those that really do need these prescription medications can yeah. afford them. So why are these costs so high and why do you think it is free market principles that can help lower these costs? Well, I'll give you one great example. Okay, so uh, when there is a drug that is developed for a certain condition, there is a patent that is put on that medication. And after so many years, the patent runs out and then generics can be developed or yeah. similar drugs. And that way you have more of those types of drugs on the market, which it forces costs to go down. They're in competition. 
But what drug companies have been able to do is change the formulary just enough that they can get a brand new patent on that drug, which will disallow the uh, advancement of uh, other generics on the market. And that's so not it keeps competition. the cost no. up. Yeah. Yes. Right. We need that competition. So we do have to take a look at that and make sure that we're driving those costs down. Competition, free yeah. market, develop products that Americans are asking for and need in their, their daily lives. Now, Senator Ernst, I I understand you have a speaking engagement, but I have one last question for you. You've spent almost six years in the Senate now. Is there one thing that you've learned since you first started that you would want to share with the audience out there that you think that you know could be helpful for other senators out there and that has made you a stronger leader? Communication, bottom line. It is all about communication. Communication with your constituents and making sure that you understand exactly what are those issues that are facing those constituents. And then taking that communication and sharing their stories with the other members of Congress, whether they are Republican or Democrat, you have to be the voice of the people you represent. Communication, it's all about that. And and then uh, from that communication comes all of the other wonderful things, collaboration and, and great legislation. Yeah. But it's all about communication. I love that. Senator, thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. God bless you. Thanks. God bless you as well. And this has been our coverage at CPAC. We are just finishing now our, our coverage here today, our a lot, you know, coverage. But there will be more interviews online as well. So cool to finally meet here. I have to say, Alex, what, what an oh, experience. Oh, she's an impressive woman, I really think. Well, you know, and then that's going to sum it up for us here today. It's going to wrap us up for our, our taped coverage of CPAC on the air today. There will be more coverage today, and there will be more coverage on Radio Free Hillsdale tomorrow on the air. So be sure to check us out online, soundcloud.com slash Radio Free Hillsdale. This has been a special edition of American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. On behalf of Radio Free Hillsdale and our entire team here, thank you for listening. <laughs>